My name is Andrew Blumenfeld, and this is the Money in Politics podcast. Understanding voters' attitudes is no doubt an important part of an effective campaign. After all, if a campaign is going to spend significant sums of money to get their message out there, they better be sure they're crafting their message in a way that resonates and reaching the people they need to win. In order to do that, campaigns have long invested in polling and research. But what do we know about the accuracy, capacity, and limitations of polling and research? Especially since the surprising outcome of the 2016 presidential election, polling has received a great deal of scrutiny in politics, and there's been a fresh wave of reflection on that industry in the aftermath of the 2020 cycle. To help us better understand all of that, I am joined today by Celinda Lake. She is the president of Lake Research Partners. Celinda Lake is one of the Democratic Party's leading political strategists. She serves as a pollster and senior advisor to President-elect Biden, the National Party Committees, and dozens of Democratic incumbents and challengers at all levels of the electoral process. She's going to make us all smarter about polling and research and its role in campaigns, as well as what her research tells us about attitudes regarding money in politics. But first, a message from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, Call Time AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy to use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. I'm joined now by Celinda Lake. Celinda, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. This is an area of great interest to me, and I know a lot of our listeners. And before we get too deep into all of the work that you do, let's talk a little bit about you. If you could just share a little bit about yourself and how you found yourself into politics and what led you ultimately to forming Lake Research Partners. So I am originally from Montana. I grew up on a ranch in Montana and grew up in um, Republican politics, actually. I was a teenage Republican, which is kind of like saying you were a teenage werewolf on our side. But I always say that converts are the clearest in their thinking. And I uh, was always very interested in women in politics. And of course, Montana had the first woman in Congress, Jeanette Rankin, and a courageous woman who spoke out against war, both World War I and World War II. And then uh, I went to Smith College and then on to the University of Michigan to study survey research and always maintained a strong interest in politics. Came down to Washington, D.C. to work on politics and was first involved on the Hill, then involved in the Women's Campaign Fund, and then joined Stan Greenberg in Greenberg Lake where we were involved in the 1992 Clinton-Gore campaign. And I did the focus groups for that campaign, working with Stan, obviously. And then um, after different things went on with a couple of original people that we had been together to start our own firm in 1994. And we have continued as a firm committed to progressive ideas, progressive politics, including money in politics, and very, very committed to getting big money out of politics, and then uh, working for progressive candidates. And in 2019, we decided that the most important thing was to beat Donald Trump. And we had worked with Joe Biden 
in 2008. And I really believe that he was the strongest candidate for defeating Donald Trump and knew him as a very decent, very honorable man, someone who really believed in uniting the country and was far more progressive than he was often given credit for. And so I was very proud to become part of his team and worked with Anzalone List Grove. We were the two major polling firms and a variety of other firms that were involved as well and worked uh, for the Biden team on a variety of projects and states. That's great. And speaking of 2020, I think one of the things that comes to mind, whether you are just a casual observer of politics or you are someone who is a practitioner within it, after 2020 and especially after 2016, there's all this commentary about the accuracy of polling and research. It strikes me, again, as someone who tries to pay a good amount of attention to this stuff, that it's pretty hard to follow kind of and discern kind of fact from fiction and sort of bloviating and sort of Monday morning quarterbacking versus what is actual like lessons learned? How does this change the profession? So I'm just curious from someone who has that kind of resume, who obviously you know knows what makes for good research, good polling, your take on 2016 and 2020, your take on the actual lessons that can be learned from that versus you know what is a little bit more just noise. So let me say, first of all, that the private polling, particularly at least around the Biden campaign, was a lot more accurate than the public polling. I mean, some newspapers had polls out the last weekend that showed us 17 points ahead. We never had ourselves 17 points ahead. And I don't think you'll see any um, Biden pollster that claimed that there was a blue tide. We knew it was close. I think there, the Senate race polling was less accurate. And now we were doing tracking in Arizona and our polling was pretty close to the final results. But we were also tracking in Montana and there the results were further off. So I think every pollster has those stories this cycle. One of the things that I think we underestimated was the surge of Trump voters. And we saw it in 2016, we saw it in 2020. And we saw in 2020, toward the end, a lot of new registration with white, non-college educated voters. And I think all of us underestimated the full impact of that swing and how straight ticket voting those voters were going to be. When you look at the House and Senate races, many of the House and Senate races that we lost we're in districts that Trump won in 26 or states in 2016 and in 2020. But there is no question that there was a surge of turnout. Progressives and Democrats, I think, are used to thinking of high turnout as always beneficial for us. And it depends. It depends on who's turning out. It is also true, and this was a mantra of the Biden campaign and really something that Becca Siegel, our data analytics team, reinforced repeatedly, which is mobilization requires persuasion. And there was really a sense that even with our base voters, we need a persuasion as well as a mobilization. And then I think we also are not necessarily respectful enough of Trump's impact and the conservatives' GOTV operations. They don't always look exactly like ours, 
but they're very, very formidable. And their use of social media, in this case, their use of more of a ground game because they just didn't agree about keeping people safe. Uh, and that was just a fundamental disagreement uh, at the core of the two campaigns. So, But from a polling perspective, I think there are three things to look at. One is the surge in turnout. That's the hardest thing to get right. Who's actually going to turn out? And in surge elections, I think the polls tend to be less accurate. It's particularly late surges. We are bad at picking that up. We have to design our models, and it's really hard to do. Secondly, in 2016, the polls were coming into college educated. Now, we have always set quotas for our non-college educated voters, but all of the pollsters, I think, have become more aggressive about that. And that was an innovation that you saw in 2020. And then the pollsters are very divided about the secret Trump vote. We are a firm that actually believes in the secret Trump vote. We have measures to measure it. We had identified, for example, in Wisconsin that there was a 2% secret Trump vote. We had identified that before the election, so it was going to be closer. It still got even closer because their side used same-day registration just like our side used same-day registration and new registration. So that's another factor. I think there is a secret Trump vote, a shy Trump vote, and I think we still have to work on on capturing that vote correctly or adjusting for it correctly. I was just going to ask you about that last point you raised. Is, are you a believer in the the shy or secret Trump voters? So you answered that and, and you suggested that, you know, that there are mechanisms for capturing that. One I've read about or heard a little bit about is this idea of you know, who do you think your neighbors are going to vote for? Who do you think your community is going to vote for? Are there other ways? Because the thing that seems so vexing about this question, right, is if it's something that is kind of, if it's coming from a place of a desire not to be counted, like if the kind of person we're talking about is so counter-institutional, so counter-establishment, and so sort of maybe even especially counter kind of like, a, I don't know, whatever they sort of see as like big politics, <laughs> you know, in a pollster calling them so that they are actually purposefully avoiding, you know, being counted. That seems to me like a very different kind of question or problem to solve than if it's just that, oh, our typical measures like, oh, there are some communities that are don't have as many landlines or there are some communities that are only on certain kinds of websites. You know, that's just about us figuring out where to find them. But are you a believer that this is actually a kind of person who is avoiding being counted or is it just we haven't quite cracked where they are? Mm -hmm. I think it's a very smart question that you're asking. There are a variety of factors. And I think there are three things to compensate. First of all, I do think they refuse more. And you can keep track of that. And one of the things we do is we keep track of our response rates. We predict the vote of the people who tell us no, they will not, or don't answer their phones and tell us no. We adjust accordingly. We try to replace people with likes. So I replace a model Trump voter with a model Trump voter. I don't replace them with a model Biden voter. The second thing is it matters who's interviewing them. And we've seen this now. There's less effect online surveys, but online surveys have their own problems of access that you were referring to. But, you know, we know that uh, we keep track of whether you're interviewed by a woman or a man. We keep track of you know, this was particularly true during the Obama years, we would ask people, what do you think my race is? We would have the interviewers ask, what do you think my race is at the end of the questionnaire? And people can guess the race of the interviewer in an average of 45 seconds, and they're 85% correct. 
So there is definitely adjustments. Democrats, white Democrats who were talking to people they assumed were African-American answered differently than white Democrats who were talking to people they assumed were white. So that's something to keep track of as well. And, and ours was one of the first firms to identify that. So there are a variety of techniques. We asked some questions um, like we were doing some polling in Montana in 2016, actually, and we did an experiment where we started the survey and said, how did you like that Bobcat Grizz game? Or you have a hunting license. And it kept some of those Trump people on longer because they thought, oh, well, if you're asking about hunting, then uh, you're my kind of guy <laughs> or gal. And, we, you know, that answer wasn't particularly, you know, it was predictive to the vote, but wasn't particularly something that we would have normally started out with. The fourth thing we did, particularly in this election, one of the things we learned is that we paid attention to the Biden number. So we thought there's no reason to lie in favor of Biden. That's not how this works. So if we're going to get 50% of the vote or 49% of the vote, we're going to get 49% of the vote. It's how those undecideds, those third parties, the refusals, how are they answering? So you could trust the Biden number. Those numbers were very rarely wrong. It was just the Trump number that was often off. Hmm. Very interesting. And so this leads me a little bit to kind of a more global question about the cycle, which is, you know, what about it did ultimately surprise you the most? And I would say kind of as a compliment to that question, what ultimately ended up not surprising you one bit? It ended up exactly the way that you expected. <laughs> Boy, I don't know, because I thought it was always going to be close. So <laughs> under those circles, and I was scared to death on election night, sure. uh, particularly in Pennsylvania. Wisconsin surprised me a little bit. I thought we would do a little bit better there, honestly. And I think one thing that I learned from having pulled a lot in Wisconsin, New Hampshire, and Montana was that same-day registration, and particularly the Trump folks, know how to use that to their advantage. Even if they're voting on Election Day or earlier, they know how to use that to their advantage. So that surprised me a little bit. I was not a big believer in the blue tide. I don't think you'll ever find me quoted saying there's a blue tide. And demography, I think, is destiny, but it's destiny in 30 or 50 years. It's not destiny in five months. So much, much more conservative about that. I was surprised at the success. I mean, I saw it in the data, but I was surprised in the success of the Trump administration's targeting of people of color. And, you know, as in fact, one African-American voter actually said in a focus group about Latino voters, you know, how do you vote for someone who doesn't even want you here? But then he went on to say, was a young African-American, went on to say, but I'm really interested in this entrepreneurship that this was in Michigan that John James and, and Donald Trump are talking about. So demonstrating the very same behavior he had been critiquing other voters for. So I was surprised and uh, concerned about that success. I think the campaign, the Biden campaign took it very, very seriously. But that was, you know, part of what I would say surprised me a little bit. But as a pollster, you're very rarely surprised because you listen to voters all night long, every night. <laughs> That's right. You've got your fingers on the pulse better than anyone. And actually, obviously, that, that is why campaigns and causes work with you all. So let's shift gears just a little bit to the kind of that relationship and just sort of kind of your thoughts about how your work is best utilized by campaigns. I'll start with something that you sort of mentioned a few moments ago, which is that the private polling is more accurate than the public polling. 
let me start, I guess, by saying what's the reason for that and sort of what can campaigns like what confidence can campaigns then take in the fact that what they're going to get when they work with a pollster and research, like you're helping them reach conclusions that are different than just the horse race that's printed on the front page of the New York Times, right? So I think the first thing I would say, particularly for our firm, about more than half of our work is for issues and issue groups. So we firmly believe that, and even for our candidates, most of our candidates are progressives. All of our candidates know what they believe in. And people find it ironically that we could be AOC's pollster and Joe Biden's pollster. (laughs) But we find that quite consistent. So we do not believe in polling to tell people what they should believe in. We believe in polling to tell you how to talk about what you believe in. And we are the only polling firm that has criteria. I mean, we don't ask you to run around with a scarlet A on your forehead, but we only work for pro-choice candidates. We only work for pro-labor candidates. We have a criteria. And if you don't believe in those things, that's just not a good match for us. And we don't work with you. We also don't want to be a pollster that reinforces conventional wisdom. And so we often say, and Anat Shanker has said this about her work, and we work very often with her and love working with her, that the job of message folks is not to tell you what to say, but to tell you how to say what you think is important to say. And that's different. We also really like in our issue work to include the input from grassroots groups to include the grassroots and progressive leaders input. And when we do issue projects, we often have a sample of advocates and we have a rule that if the advocates don't like what the message is, it's going nowhere because no one's carrying it. But we're not one of those pollsters that say, well, progressives have nowhere to go. You've got nowhere to go. We're actually being progressives. We know we're very fun and interesting people. We got lots of things we could do. (laughs) We're not going to carry messages we don't believe in. And they won't work anyway. Um, So that's a pretty, an ideology that we have believed in for a long, long time. And we think it served us well and served well for Change for America. The other thing, and I'm not just saying this because I'm on your podcast, but (laughs) we say at the end of all of our presentations, I don't care what your issue is, you must be for campaign finance reform. You must be for getting big money out of politics. And a lot of consultants and DC consultants in particular behind the scenes do not like that because they think it will reduce their margins. Well, I'm sorry. You can kill democracy or you can have a little higher margin, (laughs) but we think it's really, really important to get big money out of politics. And uh, we work constantly for that. Let's talk about that. But before I get to that, actually, let me ask you a little bit about how you help campaigns uh, think about how they spend their money in politics. You know, I have always been fascinated by the fact that, you know, again, I think because the most people interact with polling on the other end of public polling, right? They're reading a newspaper, they're seeing a high level kind of bottom line horse race figure. And so it may not be clear to most people, especially people who haven't worked in the campaign world, how much of the purpose of research is actually to inform and guide your approach well before sort of that actual bottom line number of what happens on election day ever comes to be. And so I guess with that in mind, how do you kind of 
if campaign comes to you or, or, or whether it's for a candidate or a cause and they're trying to get your advice on like at what point should they start spending on research on what point should they start engaging a firm like yours when does it make sense for those dollars to be dedicated to the kinds of insights that that you all look to provide so a couple of shorthand rules for that, and it's a very good question. Number one, you shouldn't spend money on polling if you don't have money to implement the poll. And people kid us, and frankly, sometimes I've been overboard on this, people kid us for often discouraging polling and say, well, you shouldn't really poll. <laughs> Go put that into the grassroots effort because if you spend all the money on the poll, you don't really have the money to implement what you found in the poll. So we feel pretty strongly about that. The second thing I would say is you shouldn't develop a relationship with a pollster just at the moment you're going to poll. You should have an ongoing relationship because, you know, somebody like our firm, we're, you know, putting several polls in every night. We're putting focus groups in the field every night. We know a lot about what's going on and that we may be able to be helpful. And we're going to tell you, and pollsters, all the pollsters are pretty religious about this. And they'll say, you know, We've seen this, but it might have changed. We've seen this, but we haven't pulled on that. We've never asked it that way. I don't know how that would be. My instincts are this, but we haven't really pulled on it. People are very, very conscientious about that. So I think developing, and then the poll that you do will be better. And most pollsters want that ongoing involvement. Certainly we do. And we want involvement after the poll's been delivered in terms of implementation as well. We don't want to just deliver the poll, drop it off and say, so long. Hope you had a good time. Hope you can use this. You know, we want it, and there's no extra charge for this. We want to look at the mail or the speech or the social media or whatever that implements that poll. Because, you know, we're working for you because we believe in the cause, not just to get another poll. So I think that is a rule. Start earlier than you might be thinking about. And then the best use of polling, we always say the least important question in that poll is, are you going to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Or are you going to, do you favor or oppose a $15 increase in minimum wage or an increase in minimum wage of $15 an hour? What's really important is all of the behind the scenes questions all of the responses to different messages. It's to design the whole campaign. It's not just the horse race. Your point about making sure that there's enough money in the bank, not just to do the research, but then to act on the research, I think is both obviously a very good point and good piece of advice, but also something I'd love to hear more about. What are the ways that you've seen the research that you've done effectively influence the work that then the campaign does from every moment after they get that research? Well, about three or four ways. One, good polling can establish your overall frame. So when you come back, you always come back to the same messaging. Number two, good polling can tell you what are your two strongest messages underneath that frame. Number three, polling can tell you of the 10 things they're going to say bad about you. And right now, the right wing just throws everything against the wall to see what sticks. Here are the two that you need to worry about. And here are the best answers to that, too. And then the last thing that polling tells you is who should you be talking to? Who's your base? Does your base need reinforcement? Who are the swing? Who's their base that you're never going to get? So these targets, you know, pretty critical then. I mean, because if you're spending a lot of money to talk to voters, but it's not the right voters, <laughs> it's a waste of money, right? So it's, I guess, in that way, it should be thought of as an investment in making sure the future dollars are actually being put where they can do the most good. 
Right. And sometimes the answer may be, hey, you know, this is not doable right now. Or this is doable only if you can outspend your opponent. Or this is doable only if you can get out to frame the issue first. And one of the things, particularly with issues, is we look to see, do you have to have the first word or the last word or both? Because that tends to be a really important part of the campaign. So, yeah, it tells you a lot about the structure of your situation. And then switching to the fundraising side of things, have you ever seen, I can imagine, I guess, just in the, under the general umbrella of helping you frame your message, that that could encompass everything from how you talk about your fundraising, how you talk to donors and all of those things. Any other ways that you've seen good research that you've provided campaigns uh, be used to influence the way they go about fundraising? Yeah, I don't think polling is the best way to go about fundraising, honestly. And in general, often the message to the donors is different than the message to right. the... Um, <laughs> and it depends on what kind of donors you're talking about. Are you talking about small donors? Are you talking about big donors? Are you talking about vested self-interest? Or are you talking about ideological interests? So it really depends a lot. I think that polling helps you understand your broad message. It helps you understand who you can activate as the messengers. It can tell you, you know, is the message the same for the base or the swing? I mean, that's a fundamental question in most issue campaigns. And it's not always the same. Sometimes the message is the same. Sometimes it's different. So, and even the wording that you use, um, you know, like we have done a lot of work and we found frequently in social and economic issues that right is the best language for the base, but basic needs is the best language for the swing. So just even little nuances like that can have fundamental framing differences. We found, for example, that older voters like the language, everyone is included. All of us are included, all Americans, all families. Millennials and Gen Zers love the term no exceptions. Older voters didn't like that term, no exceptions, but millennials like that and would retweet that a lot. So just little minor nuances like that can make a big difference. Again, we're not trying to drive the message with the polling. We're not trying to reinforce the status quo. We're trying to bring about change. But we do know what is the best way to talk about where you want to be, not necessarily where the voters are today, but where you want them to be. How's the best way to get there? It makes me wonder, you know, we've talked a little bit about uh, the Biden campaign. You referenced AOC. It makes me wonder, though, how does this look different up and down the ballot? And I'll add a little bit more nuance to that question, which is just I think one of the things that I have seen campaigns struggle with is making sense or finding meaning in research when the ability, it seems, of the voter to connect back whatever issues are being talked about to a specific role on the ballot and even more specifically to a particular candidate for that specific role, yeah. you know, many pages into their ballot. It's just I certainly am just curious about whether or not the way you approach this the way that you think about the meaning that you're deriving from these polls, the kind of advice you give about how to act on the, what you learn from the polls, how does that change sort of as you slide up and down the ballot? So there are a couple of ways that it changes. It's a really good question. One way that it changes is, are we even going to be able to penetrate? In fact, frankly, one of the worst things that happened this cycle was the tremendous surge of money into Senate campaigns. Didn't particularly help those campaigns, as it turned out, 
but really drowned out the lower ballot races underneath them. And so there was a lot less ticket splitting. And that was only one factor. There were many factors in that, but a lot less ticket splitting than we had seen in the past, particularly in red states like, say, Montana. So that was really disappointing and upsetting. And those voices were just drowned out. And the second thing I would say is we've used the term on this conversation of polling, but often it's polling in combination quantitative with qualitative. So qualitative research, focus groups, qual boards, variety of different techniques can often be the best technique to use to get at that yes, but to see if you're even going to break through. We did some very interesting work for Democratic mayors. And a lot of Democratic mayors did not want to take over their schools. And they were very, very leery of running on education because they did not think it was appropriate to take over their schools. But the voters who supported the Democratic mayors, particularly women, wanted their mayors to be the education mayor. And we went in and did some focus groups for some mayors where the voters, we said, you know, the the mayor has no jurisdiction over education. And in one particular case, the women voters in the group stood up, African-American women stood up and said, well, she'd be the education mayor. She cared about what we cared about. It doesn't matter what the jurisdiction is. So, but then on the other hand, when we were testing this cycle, so-and-so voted 98% of the time with Donald Trump, that didn't test very well. And in fact, you found that wasn't used in very many campaigns because it didn't test well. And voters said, what are you talking about? There's no one like Donald Trump. No, he's one of a kind. I don't care what the votes are. That's just Matt, you know, manipulating statistics because there's no one like Donald Trump. Like him or dislike him, people thought there was no one like him. Hmm. The idea of some of the down ballot races, you know, not having an opportunity to break through in part because of the flood of money into these Senate races is so interesting to me and definitely not something I thought about before. It's so interesting. And it it makes me want to go back to an earlier comment you made and get some more of your thoughts on just what you have seen in all of your research on money and politics, like how you certainly, it's not hard for me to imagine kind of the standard views that may exist out there. There's some people who it's, you know, just a, it's a matter of liberty and there's never more money that's bad money. And then there's the other end of the spectrum, you know, it's all publicly financed, you know, money in politics is bad, you know, in crooked. I'm just curious, can you help nuance that with all of the work and research that you've done? And also because obviously it's a value that you and your firm hold to combat the influence of big money in politics, just any takes on that that you have found? So three takes. I would say in general, voters definitely want to get big money out of politics. The problem is they think the system is completely rigged, which they're right, but they don't think that this is free speech. They don't understand how could you have such a screwed up decision? This isn't free speech. This is paid speech. And they're absolutely right. So in some, I used to laugh and say, you know, we need those campaign finance decisions just to be repeated so the public understands that we got no (laughs) choices here. The second thing I would say is that people like small donor contributions, but even with small donor contributions, that's big money in some cases and fueled by big money in other cases. And we need to get that under control. And I personally think the only way to get it under control is public financing. Public financing is tough. Some of the ways in which that money has been raised have been ruled, and you're the expert much more than I am, but ruled unconstitutional. Like people love it when the money comes from lobbying fees, but 
that's been ruled. You can't do it that way. And the public doesn't want to use their hard-earned tax dollars for campaigns because they don't like campaigns. So why should I have to pay for the campaign? (laughs) I don't like it to begin with. So it's the public financing can be a tough sell, unfortunately. And it helps a lot when you talk about small donor match and there are different ways around it. But there are a couple of boulders in the road that we have been knocking our heads against for some time. I also think that real campaign finance reform at this point is going to come from the grassroots, not from Washington down. We're going to have to concentrate. And that's hard because that means 50 state operations, or there are a couple of states that have it, but And then how do we influence the feds? We need a constitutional amendment. So it's complicated. It's really complicated. Do you see voters responding to the trend of candidates refusing certain types of money? You know, obviously, I've seen specific industries, no fuel, uh, no oil, no fossil fuels. I've seen, you know, no corporate PACs. Obviously, in some places, they're not allowed to take corporate PAC money, but in other places where they are refusing it, or just no PAC, see no PAC money at all from any source, uh, just all individual checks. Uh, Do voters respond to that at all? Do you find? Yeah, they do, particularly limiting certain kinds of money. Like I'm going to be for prescription drug reform and no money from pharma, or I'm going to be for climate change, no money from oil and gas industry. So they do respond to that. It's a short-term benefit. It's long-term hard because you're taking away some of the momentum behind the change. And so we don't get the systemic reform that we really need. In terms of PACs, of course, the problem is, you know, under our current system, you're then eliminating the voice of labor union members. You're, you know, there are some vehicles or pro-choice people get, you know, joining together in Planned Parenthood. So, you know, our it's not necessarily the best decision to say no PACs, even though the public likes it. So it really seems like we need bigger reform. We can, we're getting this reform nibbling around the edges, but we're having trouble getting the overall reform that we need because people don't understand why it's considered a free speech to begin with, and people don't understand why they have to be the ones to pay for it. But you have found that there sort of are ways to communicate this issue, you know, so even if the initial reaction may be, hey, I don't want to pay for, for example, public financing, uh, you think there are other models out there or even the public financing model, if sort of communicated correctly, that the voters do seem to respond to? Yes, totally. And like small donor match and you have to qualify with so much and it make you less vulnerable to the attacks. So definitely. Yeah, I've always dreamed of and I've certainly seen models tried like this, uh, sometimes in very small settings, but nonetheless, where, you know, the focus is also on local dollars. I've always thought that was so important, you know, because, you know, you made the point before that the message to voters and the message to donors can be very different. And a lot of times that's because they're just very different people, right? You're talking to a universe of donors that may only mildly overlap with the universe of voters. And that's just a shame because if for no other reason... Because, you know, we know campaigns have to spend a lot of their time fundraising. And so if they're spending most of their time on an activity that isn't even sort of an in-district or in-state activity, that's just a, it makes the entire enterprise of a campaign less about a community building opportunity and more just about a, uh, an operation that needs funding. <laughs> that's right. And that's why I think it's hard to do the local money because it puts at disadvantage candidates who stay in the system. And put self-financing candidates at an advantage. And 
you know, there are a lot of our best voices come from pretty poor districts. So that's hard. But I think qualifying for the money with local signatures mm-hmm. or local match is a good compromise because it gets everybody can put their boots on the ground. Everybody can put their signature down. Everybody can put in, you know, and voters like sliding scale, you know, matching. And when we ask people, where would you start the match? They said, oh, like five cents or a dollar. So people you know, are willing to take it pretty darn low and they like high match rates. So I think there's some ways to bring in the local voices, but it's interesting. It's an interesting thing to think about exploring more as we try to build back momentum to get this kind of financing going. Because unfortunately, even our candidates in both President Obama and President-elect Biden who would have been pretty sympathetic to the system and to campaign finance reform, opted out because of the pressure. And so our system's kind of breaking down. And I think, you know, it used to be that you could really get the new members to be for the system because many of them had spent literally the worst year of their lives they'd ever spent. They were planning (laughs) on getting out and talking to all these voters and they called all these Californians and New Yorkers instead. But now they feel like there's so much pressure on the money that it's the only way to compete. Yeah, it certainly uh, feels like it's reaching a breaking point, that's for sure. Before I let you go, let me ask you just one kind of forward-looking question. You know, again, I think maybe, certainly I don't fully appreciate until I have conversations like this, just how much people like yourself, people in the world of research are just day in and day out steeped in voters, right? Just hearing them respond to various questions in various communities on various issues in a way that, you know, just even someone who's very deeply involved in any one campaign is only ever going to hear the messages that their campaign, right? You're hearing all these campaigns all the time. So, and also you work with issue groups and I know beyond that as well. So with all that context, just what are you looking around the corner at? What do you think 2021 brings? I can imagine some of, there's a lot of stuff we're all going through that's not going away anytime soon, but any sort of like things maybe we're not thinking about that are coming around the corner that you're starting to see in the research? So I think there's going to be a major debate about the economy. I think this is a very, very important debate for progressives because on election day, we were still behind Donald Trump on the economy. Democrats were behind Republicans on the economy. We really need a robust economic platform. And Trump was still getting a remarkable amount of credit for being a quote-unquote businessman and also for having a very robust economy before COVID hit and nothing he could have done about that. And we can litigate all of that, but we have a challenge economically and we're going to come full throttle into it. And just talking about COVID is not going to be enough. So that's challenge number one. Challenge number two, which is one of the things that interests me the most, is COVID has changed people's attitudes and they can be short-term changes or we can talk about how to use them as long-term changes in our system. People certainly have changed in their orientation toward government. I mean, who would have imagined that we would be no debate in the public's mind, 88% of the public in favor of a check to every person for the end of the year under 100000 or whatever your income limit is. Now, people can debate about what that amount of check is, but the government writing a check to every person under $100,000 is not a debate in the public's mind at all. Wow, socialism maybe, right? <laughs> Dare I call it that. Right. Uh, so, But how do we keep that from being a temporary response into a permanent way of rethinking 
what the role of government is and the role of government in the well-being of the citizenry of the country. So nobody in America is concerned about whether people pay for the vaccine or not. They want to make sure it's affordable. They'd be fine if it were free. They just want to get it distributed. Wow, big government and healthcare then, I guess. So again, how do we, does that change our orientation? So I'm really intrigued by this idea, people wholly rethinking family, work and family policies and caregiving policies. The two people that are most united in this polarized, divided America, the two groups that are most united in their desire for broadband are the most rural Americans and the deep inner city Americans. Okay, how do we bring that together? So there are all these opportunities in the changes that we are embracing. And we can see short-term change or we can harness it to long-term change. I'm really intrigued by how we harness it to long-term progressive change that we need. That's fascinating. And I can't wait to keep up with all of it. And actually, before I let you go, I'll also note that, you know, I I have certainly enjoyed and, and I'll encourage our listeners to take a look that your firm, Lake Research Partners, also just has a great stream of data and insights that you all make available on your website. Just, you know, so thank you for that. And yeah, I definitely encourage folks to check it out. And thank you so much for spending some time with me today. This was very fascinating. I really appreciate it. And more than spending the last 40 or so minutes with me, I'll say thank you for all of your work that you have done this cycle in previous cycles and in future ones. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for all the groups that you represent and your listeners represent. And I want to say very much, it's a whole team effort here. So I have a number of partners and they're all very, very committed to these issues and very committed to taking on things like racism and misogyny and equitable economy and a good school system and healthcare for everyone. So, and climate change. So we are eager to work with people on these issues and criminal justice reform. So we all have a lot of work to do and we're eager to be partnered with people on that. Terrific. Well, I know there'll be many people listening who are eager to be your partner as well. So thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Stay up to date with the latest fundraising trends, forecasts, and advice by going to the Call Time AI blog at www.calltime.ai. And follow us on Twitter at Call Time AI.